Welcome to Mind Love, episode 188. Today's episode is all about healthy boundaries for codependent relationships. If you share your boundary request or you share your experience, your healing is in the asking. Your healing is in the sharing. Because this is how people know who we are. And it also inspires people to reveal who they are, what they're capable of, what they're willing to do. And all of this keeping the peace, we don't get this information about people. So you may ask someone to do something and they may say they can't, they're not capable, they don't want to, they're not willing to. But it will still be good for your self-esteem to say it. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hello, love. If you have not yet subscribed, please hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts are a really great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps me get even better guests, which helps me serve you better. Today, I'm going to share part of a review because it's really long, but one that touched my soul more than I can even really explain to you. This review is from Katie Wild and Free, and she says, I started listening to Mind Love sometime in early 2018. When I first started listening, I had no idea what I believed about anything anymore. And I'll admit, I felt very skeptical in listening to some of the episodes at first. Yet, I kept listening because even though I felt skeptical, there was so much about it that rang true for me. As I've continued on my spiritual journey, I've come to resonate deeply with so many things that would have seemed far too woo-woo than I ever imagined before, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Finding spirituality has not only helped me heal so much of my religious trauma, it's given me a renewed faith and love for God, source, the universe that I could not have dreamed possible, and mind love has played such a huge part in me arriving at that place today. Katie, your full review brought tears to my eyes. I'm just so glad to have you in my tribe. So thank you so much for taking the time to write that review. One of the most difficult things I have ever had to learn was boundaries. How to set them, how to enforce them, how to actually feel good about having them. Everything about them just didn't come naturally to me. And I know a lot of you struggle with them too, because every time I mention boundaries in an episode, I get a bunch of you reaching out to me. But I've always wondered, are certain people just born bad at boundary setting? Or is it something about the lives that we've lived that makes it harder for us? Probably a little bit of both for me. I am an empath by nature, which means that I am naturally in tune with the energy of the people around me. Some people say that being an empath is actually a trauma response because something has happened to you that's caused you to be on high alert to the people around you. Like, for example, an abusive family member or an alcoholic parent. Constantly tuning into that person was like a survival mechanism. But do I think this is the case for all empaths? No, I don't. My empath characteristics actually started before my trauma. It's just always been there. And at the same time, I think it's important to remember the divine design of this existence. The universe throws things at us that crack open who we are supposed to become, or actually more so to help us realize who we already are. So in my teen years, my traumas began. Sexual assault, loss of a friend to suicide, loss of my dad, 
each one of these things eroded my ability to set boundaries just a little bit more. For a long time after my sexual assault, I couldn't say no. If I didn't say no, I couldn't be raped, as terrible as that sounds, which led to sleeping with the wrong people or just actually leaving when they were in the bathroom. (laughs) Classy, I know. Well, when I lost a friend to suicide, I remember feeling responsible. Why didn't I check on him? Why didn't I see how badly he was hurting? What if I could have done something? After that, I remember feeling responsible for any of my friend's pain. Like I needed to make sure that they were okay. When I lost my dad, I also felt guilty. Could I have been a better daughter? What if I had researched more alternative options to chemo? Because obviously that didn't work at all and it seemed like it only made his last moments here on earth worse. And after that, I remember feeling like it was up to me to find the answers for everyone. And that is a lot of pressure. So when I landed myself in a codependent relationship with an addict, it was almost like my life had just delivered me right to him on a silver platter. And I could sit here and blame the guy for nearly ruining my life. But the truth is, he was my biggest lesson here in earth school. He was not only addicted to meth, which I didn't find out until well into our relationship. He was also an alcoholic which I figured out but didn't really mind because I was drinking to numb as well and just calling it having a good time. And he was a gambling addict. I felt responsible for all of his decisions, like it was up to me to save him from himself. Well, in the healing process of that relationship, I went to Al-Anon, which is kind of like AA for family members of alcoholics. And I learned that basically everything that I was doing was only making it all worse. That whole experience was my wake-up call, but it took a really long time to actually integrate the healthier choices into my life. It's kind of like deciding to become a marathon runner one day. You don't automatically just run a marathon. We build to that. Well, I had to build to my boundaries, starting with just getting away from the person that was infringing upon them because I didn't really have the strength yet to enforce my boundaries, so I had to just find space. And then I had to get to know myself well enough to hear my inner voice again, to know what I needed so that I knew which boundaries to set. And then I had to love myself and to value myself enough to have the strength to put myself first. It was a whole process and it wasn't easy, but it's also one of the most rewarding things I have ever done. My boundaries are the foundation for the life that I want to live. So I want to make sure that you prioritize your boundaries too, because it is hard to stand for anything if you're constantly being pulled in the energies of everyone around you. So that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Terry Cole. Terry is a licensed psychotherapist and global leading expert in female empowerment. And for the last two decades, she's worked with some of the world's most well-known personalities from international pop stars to Fortune 500 CEOs. And she is also the author of Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. So three key things we will learn are the biggest myths around setting and enforcing good boundaries, what we gain by staying stuck and how to stop getting in your own way and how boundaries relate to embracing your true self. And now let's welcome Terry Cole to the show. Why, thanks for having me, Melissa. 
So what inspired you to focus your life so much around the idea of boundaries? I know for me, I didn't have them for such a long time. So there's such a difficult thing to grasp. But what led you to that direction? No. You know, what do they say? You teach what you most need to learn. So I got to say, my younger life, I was a total boundary disaster. And that did create a lot of pain in my relationships and frustration and resentment. And I didn't know, I didn't have the words or the understanding that it was my lack of boundaries that was creating that, that were creating that. So once I got into therapy, which I did young in my life, I was only 19 when I got into therapy. I spent a whole decade really figuring it out. Then I became a psychotherapist because I had a career before being a psychotherapist. And then I saw it was a friggin' epidemic. It like wasn't just me. <laughs> and that every woman who, you know, high-functioning, highly capable women in my therapy practice, everyone that walked in the door, I could trace the dots backwards to whatever pain points they were experiencing to this lack of this all-important skill set that not only did nobody teach us, but that we learned, I guess we got corrupted data about what it means to have healthy boundaries. We really learned, most of us were raised and praised for being self-abandoning codependents, you know? Right. And for me, I look back and realize that my biggest struggle with boundaries was I was afraid of being rejected for who I truly was. And I didn't realize that. Like, I didn't know that's the place it was coming from. I didn't know, hey, I'm going to do anything that I think is going to make you like me, or I'm going to just follow what you're doing or go with the flow because I don't want you to see the real me, or I don't want you to reject the real me. It was just the way I did things. It was just my way of life. And, and so you called yourself a, a boundary disaster. What does that look like? Because I'm sure so many people can relate to that. Well, it's really having disordered boundaries, which that can be either they're too porous, which means malleable, like too loose, which kind of looks like being a pushover or a peacekeeper or a chameleon, or they're too rigid. It can be more like someone being very bossy, being more like an ice queen or like a loner where you withdraw from situations that you can't handle. So again, the myths about boundaries is that people think if you have good boundaries, you're like bossing people around and saying no and rejecting people and having confrontations. And that's really not true, right? So a boundary disaster in my personal case is my boundaries were too porous. And I, like you, had the disease to please. And I was taught to be a good girl. (laughs) Of course, we want people to like us. This is the way that we were raised. And I never thought of it, that I was wanting people to like me. I was abandoning myself in the pursuit of the approval or the affection of other people. I didn't realize that until, you know, you, you can do it for a long time, but then there comes a point where you feel anyone listening is like, hmm, I wonder if my boundaries are disordered. Well, I can tell you how to, you can know, <laughs> look at your relationships and how much resentment or anger or um, how unseen do you feel underappreciated? Those are all areas and relationships that you might want to look at because either you're not asserting a boundary or maybe a boundary has been violated. And I think for clarification, Melissa, it would be good to just, let me just quickly say, and this is what I write in the book as well, what it means to me, my definition 
of having healthy boundaries means that you know your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers, right? Your non-negotiables. And you have the ability to assert them, to communicate them in your relationships. Because I really do think that a lot of people are confused about what it even looks like to have good boundaries. So it's basically letting the people in your life know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you. Right. And that clarity that you talked about is so important because when I look back to when I had poor boundaries, you had mentioned your relationships. Do you feel unseen? And the truth is, I always felt unseen because I didn't allow myself to see myself, if that makes sense. It's like I didn't know myself well enough to understand what I actually even wanted. And so all I knew is that I felt kind of hollow and that my relationships didn't feel fulfilling because I didn't take that time to get to know myself first before expecting the same thing out of somebody else. It was like I put that on the other person to discover me rather than first discovering myself. That's such a great way of putting it, and it's so true, which is why the beginning process of becoming a boundary boss, people think it's all out. Like, how do I relate to others? That's part of it. But the only way that you can do that in a healthy way is if you have your relationship with yourself figured out, and that's called internal boundaries, how you relate to yourself, what you think of yourself, how is your self-esteem, what is your level of self-worth? Because if we have a low opinion of ourselves, right, if we talk bad about ourselves, if you're last on your own list and you're always putting the wants, needs, desires of everyone else in front of yourself, what ends up happening is, whether you know it or not, you are the person who is setting the bar for the way that you're going to be treated. So if you have a low opinion of yourself or treat yourself like crap, inevitably you will attract others who agree with that low self-opinion. And so it's so crucial that we do our own work. And the whole beginning of the book and the process that I'm teaching for how to become a boundary boss is really about self-knowledge, right? The whole book is written and my whole theory that, because I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've been teaching this like specifically as a course for the last five years because I didn't want to write a book until I was like, I can conclusively say that these strategies work. I know what works and what doesn't. What isn't worth being in a book? Because you have to be really, (laughs) you can't have a book that's 9,000 words long, obviously, right? (laughs) You have to be discerning as to what is going to go in there. And so that the process of understanding what I call your downloaded boundary blueprint. That's all about you. That's the home you grew up in, the country, the culture, your family culture. Was there addiction, abuse, chaos, neglect? Was it very authoritarian? Was there an expectation of perfection and performance? All of those things impact the way that we relate to boundaries, along with the way the people in our family system related to each other. So that's a bunch of unpacking that we do in the very start of the book because your boundary blueprint is different than my boundary blueprint, right? Because we weren't raised by the same people and we weren't born the exact same human. So the whole deep dive into self-knowledge, self-acceptance. So there's five pillars that all of this is built on. It's the five pillars of self-mastery that I created decades ago, a long time ago, because I've been doing this for a long time. So it's self-awareness is the first one, self-knowledge, self-acceptance, self-compassion. And then we end with self-mastery, which also includes self-love and self-celebration. 
And so the whole book is basically, and everything that I teach is based on these pillars because from being a psychotherapist for 25 years, I know that this is the way transformation has to happen. We can't wish for it enough or pray for it enough or think about becoming fluent in boundaries, becoming fluent in any foreign language. We would know that we have to learn. It's not about strength or I would be good enough. You can be very smart that if nobody teaches you how to speak a foreign language, you still will not be fluent in that language. Does that make sense? It does. And I want to go back to clarify something because it was something that confused me when I first started understanding that I had zero boundaries. And it's the idea of codependency. And I think it's because for me, at least, that word didn't accurately describe what I believed it to be. And so can you explain what codependency is and how to tell if that's one of your issues? If there's one topic that keeps coming up in my women's circles, it's our hormones. Frankly, I think that between years of birth control or beauty products that mess with endocrine function, a lot of us are just out of whack. Estro Control is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. It has science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health, especially in women who suffer from PMS. The way Estro Control eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when the estrogen isn't processed well in the liver, women may start having PMS, spots on the skin, they get cravings, they feel low all of a sudden. Estro Control was created to help women feel like themselves all throughout the month because PMS can basically rob us of a week of our lives every month. Totally not fair. Estro Control is made specifically for women who are premenopausal, so it's perfect for women that haven't entered menopause yet. And in fact, it's amazing for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can turn into a beast. I have been relearning myself postpartum. I just started my period again when my baby was 10 months and I forgot how wild these hormone changes can be. I wanted something to just maintain optimal hormone levels and help with mild mood swings, and Estro Control is perfect for this. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com with promo code MINDLOVE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code MINDLOVE for 15% off your first order. I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. Well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in L.A. Then I found Aloe Moves and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content, since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher-focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? <laughs> they have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, hit classes, or reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. 
Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Isla Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to allomoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com code MINDLOVE. allomoves.com code MINDLOVE. Explain what codependency is and how to tell if that's one of your issues. Absolutely. In the book, and actually I created a new definition, right, of codependency to fit the women who were in my practice and the women who were in my courses and myself. So if you look at codependency, it became popularized really through a book, Codependent No More, written by Melody Beatty in like the 70s, I think. And it's been updated since then. But the premise of her book had a lot to do with being involved with addicts, being an enabler. So my clients just outright rejected if I brought up like, hey, your behavior is kind of codependent. They'd be like, are you crazy? I'm not dependent on anyone. I'm the one getting it all done. I'm, you know, And so they're like, I'm making all the money. I'm doing all the things. What do you mean dependent? And I was like, okay, so you don't understand it, but I knew if they were experiencing that, so many other people would, just like you said, not identify with it, even though so many of the pain points they were experiencing was and is codependency. So I will explain what it is now. Being codependent and being a high-functioning codependent means that you're overly invested in the feeling states, the decisions, the outcomes, and the circumstances of the people in your life to the detriment of your own internal peace or your own financial well-being or your own physical well-being. Because listen, we're all mothers and lovers and partners and sisters. Of course, we're invested in the lives of the people we love, obviously. But if the urgency, the level of urgency that you experience when someone that you care about has a situation, if that problem feels like it is your problem to fix, you feel an urgency like it's happening to you, that is codependency. That is what it feels like. We want to save people from making mistakes. We want to guide them on their path. We don't want them to be in pain. And so when you think about codependency, it is an overt or covert bid for control. That's really what it is. And, you know, when I was younger, I didn't realize how highly codependent I was. I thought I was just like loving. I thought I was just kind. I was just like Mother Teresa in my own mind until I had a bunch of therapy and got clarity. But with high-functioning codependency, these women are so highly capable, as I am and have been, so nobody would look at them. They think you have it all together. They're like, yes, it's almost like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. They would say that Ginger Rogers was doing everything that Fred Astaire was doing, except she was doing it backwards and in heels. Have you ever heard that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's like my high-functioning codependence where you make it look easy and you're so capable that nobody really realizes, and you yourself usually don't until you must face it, the cost to your bandwidth to your mental health, to your physical wellness, to your financial wellness. And so as soon as I changed that name, and I called it high-functioning codependency, people were like, oh my God, yes, hi, 
that's definitely me. I was for sure that is me. So it was, I was successful in changing it, but it is a bit different than quote unquote regular codependency because this is a specific group of women in particular and could be men too, but my expertise is more with women who are so capable that they wouldn't identify with codependency. And yet it is absolutely codependency. It's so interesting too, because those characteristics, you can just envision that woman who's like, no, I'm not dependent at all. (laughs) Like you said, I'm the one keeping everything together. But it's like, I love that definition of, is it to a detriment? Are you controlling things? And the idea of control issues goes so heavy with codependence is what makes it so elusive or confusing for people because it's like the types of people that want to control are usually the least likely to ever say that they're going to be dependent on somebody because they're expecting everyone to be on them. But that is why it's codependence because it's almost like you're dependent on other people being dependent on you. <laughs> yes. And, and you're overgiving, overfunctioning, overdoing, right? So a lot of times, when you were highly functional, we will get into relationships with people. And because we're so used to doing it all, we just do more than our share naturally. And there's a whole thing, and I write about it in the book called with overfunctioning and underfunctioning, where you could take a perfectly capable other human being. And trust me, if you overfunction enough before you know it, they are underfunctioning because it's not even worth it. They're like, okay, well, I can do this. And the person who does so much is like, I got it. I'm good. I got it. I got it. Don't worry. Think about how much of the time we reject help from other people, even when we need it. I mean, when I was in my 20s, like never asking for help, forget about it, of course. Obviously, I would never ask for help, but that's disordered emotional boundaries, right? Not accepting help, that's disordered boundaries. Codependency by its very nature means you absolutely have disordered boundaries, that it's all about crossing boundaries. So if you're doing things for other people that they can and should be doing for themselves, you are behaving in a codependent way. And here's the thing about it though, Melissa, it's not a judgment like, oh, that's terrible, it's bad. It's that there's a cost to your relationships to do that, there's a cost to yourself, which is exhaustion. I mean, I can't tell you how many women would come into my therapy practice and be like, I think I have an autoimmune disorder. I think I have this. I can't sleep. I have TMJ. I just had shingles. All of these stress-related ailments because you are burning the candle at every end and you can't do that forever. Maybe in your 20s you can, but trust me, it catches up. And then you will have physical manifestations of all of this overfunctioning. And this is a very um, common way that women have disordered boundaries. So going back to your pillars of creating these boundaries, the first two, self-awareness and self-knowledge, how are those different? Well, self-awareness is really about, we have to raise our awareness about not just how we are in the world, but like, what are our pain points? Where are we unsatisfied? What is okay with us? What is not okay with us? We really get into taking a vast inventory, our relationships, our career, our finances, our living situation, even down to the lighting in like your bedroom, you know, like big things and small things. Because when we are over-functioners, so much of the time, and, and people pleasers, right? We want to handle everything. We don't want there to be conflict. We don't want there to be problems. There is a tendency to never really dial into our own preferences in small and big ways, 
where we know we want certain things. So I'm saying big things, maybe if it has to do with kids, right? You know, you have a preference. You want this kid to go to this school or you want to make sure that they have what they need. But I'm talking about when it comes to us, our own preferences. So awareness is about what's working and what's not working kind of in your life, right? And so much of that has to do with boundaries. And then self-knowledge is where we do, you know, we do a deep dive sort of into the basement of your mind, which is really looking at what we experienced in life, in childhood, in our teen years, in our past relationships. So there's quite a bit of excavating that we do, which a lot of the times we don't do this. If you're not in therapy, we're like, it's past, it's over. Why am I talking about, you know, I can't tell you how many clients would say to me, why am I talking about what happened when I was in third grade? I don't want to blame my parents. It was three decades ago. I should be over it by now. I'm like, listen, if we don't honor it, you're never going to be over it. We're not blaming anybody. <laughs> we literally need actual knowledge of what happened in your life. And again, this it's not about blaming anyone. It's just that knowledge, we need that information to what needs your attention. We have childhood injuries or wounds or experiences that might need to be honored. So then we honor them. We write about it. We deal with it. We talk to someone else about it. But we can't just stuff things down forever. If they're still sticky or activated in some way, if that injury was never dealt with, it is driving your behavior right now, <laughs> like right this minute. So that's where the self-knowledge piece comes in. And then the third pillar is self-acceptance because it's painful, some of the stuff. We have to accept that our parental impactors, whoever they were, were human beings, made mistakes. Maybe they were not even, maybe they were really damaged human beings. I don't know. It's painful. Our own past behaviors or boundary disasters, some of them, we have to accept, hey, Maybe I did the wrong thing in that moment. Maybe I didn't handle it right. Maybe I ghosted that person and I should have had a conversation. Maybe I did something that was against my ethics or my values. And now I'm stuffing it down rather than handling it, managing it within ourselves. Like we have to get real. You know, the subtitle of the book is to learn to talk true, but it's also learning to kind of face the truth because we're all human beings. We've all had the light and we all have the shadow of our experiences and to act like we don't is just not real life, right? So that self-acceptance is important. Then we move into self-compassion. And this is the one that I think is really hard for women in particular, because we can have all the compassion in the world for other people. <laughs> but when it comes to ourselves, I feel like there is an inner mean girl committee, perhaps, that is just like, you should do more, you should do better, you should have known, this is what you get. There's a harshness to that inner voice for many of my clients and in my, for my young self as well, that, oh my God, I would never say the things to my friends that I used to say to myself. So self-compassion is a discipline, it's something you learn, but it's so incredibly important because the relationship you have with yourself of course, sets the bar for every other relationship in your life. But it also is the most important relationship you will ever have, mainly because it does set the bar for those other relationships. You know, and then the last pillar is self-mastery, meaning you can handle what comes your way. You may not like a confrontation, but you can do it. You may feel still a little trepidation about asking for what you want in a relationship, but you'll ask. 
you'll tell the truth, you'll share how you feel. That is self-mastery, where you can count on yourself to do the right thing for you, which doesn't mean we never compromise in relationships. It doesn't mean, listen, if you're in a family, obviously you're still going to do some crap you don't feel like doing because that's called being in a relationship, right? Sometimes we do things we don't want to do, but not because we're afraid to be rejected. We do it consciously, mindfully, because we love the person and we're choosing it, not as a default position. I've never heard that description of it, but doing something to not be rejected versus doing something to love someone is such a healthy way to look at it. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone really explain it like that before. It's like, well, you just know. (laughs) But I look back at my life and I have one relationship that I was the most codependent. He also had multiple addictions. So this is what even got me to read Codependent No More. So it made a lot of sense for me. But like I said, even then I was like, I'm not the dependent one. He's the dependent one. And when I sat there and I did an inventory of like trying to be real with myself and actually looked at the relationship instead of just because in my story, even when we were together, it's like, gosh, you're screwing up. I have to pick up your mess. I have to save you. And when I looked back and really acknowledged all of the mistakes I made, all the ways I failed myself instead of just looking at the way he failed me. It was really, really difficult to have that self-acceptance or that self-compassion because I'm all of a sudden I'm seeing things clearly instead of making all these excuses for myself and numbering all of my mistakes. Do you have any tips for moving more quickly to that acceptance or that, that compassion or does it just take repetition and practice? And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And get this, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? Two words, 
living intentionally. We have to take full responsibility for every area of our lives, including our health, which also includes our air. And that's why I love my air doctor. As a reminder, when you support my sponsors, you also support the show. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants, so your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants like allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I live in the mountains, and our air is pretty great. When I drive home, I can witness myself rising above the cloud of pollution that covers the rest of Southern California. But I know that even in the mountains, my home traps in the contaminants that my family brings inside. Plus, just sleeping one night with my air doctor, I could actually feel the difference. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to Air Doctor Pro and use promo code MIND, and depending on the model, you'll get up to $300 off. You're saving up to $300. Lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code MIND. That's promo code M-I-N-D. Do you have any tips for moving more quickly to that acceptance or that compassion, or does it just take repetition and practice? I think that we can change the frame with the frame through which we view our past experiences. And the frame that is helpful is to really understand if you could have done it better, you would have. You were doing the best that you could with what you knew. Have compassion for where you were in your life. Maybe you were going through a rough time. None of us consciously would make those mistakes. And making ourselves, judging ourselves for those mistakes, rather than seeing them for what they are, these are learning opportunities. So in every crap stew, I like to say, there are some gems for your self-evolution if you are willing to get your hands dirty and do the work and say, hey, what was in it for me? So there's this concept that I talk about in the book. It's called secondary gain. I didn't create that concept. That is a psychological concept where when we want to understand behavior and we're stuck. So let's say you get stuck in that relationship or you get stuck in unhealthy behavior for yourself. You say, hey, I'm going to stop drinking during the week and maybe you stop for a night but then you pick it right up again, like you don't really stop. So I'm going to give your listeners a few questions that you can ask yourself because nobody wants to be stuck. You didn't want to be in that codependent relationship. You were not enjoying the pain of that. So understand that if we're stuck somewhere, something else is going on, right? So it's not just weakness. Trust me, from a psychological point of view, it's not weakness at all, (laughs) There is a psychological reason. So here are the questions that you can ask. What do I get to not feel, not face, or not experience by staying stuck here? So when I asked this, I I had a client, the drinking, (laughs) the not drinking during the week was a client. And so she came in. I can't believe I failed again. I didn't drink on Monday night, but then I drank Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I would see her on Mondays. And I was like, okay, well, let's uncover the secondary gain. Did you ask yourself the question? She's like, no. I'm like, okay, well, let's do it now. What do you get to not feel, not face, not experience by drinking during the week? And she's like, I get to not face what I know I need to do in my marriage. I was like, okay, so tell me, what do you need to do? And she's like, I've been using alcohol to numb my feelings of 
dissatisfaction, like I'm so done. There's no saving it for me. Like I knew it. I knew by the time she talked about it, like she, it was already too late for her. And she's like, and I don't know how to handle it. I was like, okay, but now do you see, now that we've revealed your secondary gain, we can stop talking about your drinking and we can start talking about the actual problem. And you will slow down your drinking or you won't. And if it remains a problem, we'll handle it. But let's not focus on that. Let's focus on what do you want to do and whatever. So you can also, another set of questions around secondary gain, and maybe, Melissa, you could have asked yourself at the time, let's say you knew this at the time you were in that relationship, could you come up with, at that point, what were you getting to not feel, not face, and not experience by staying in that codependent relationship? I had a whole sleuth of things. (laughs) Like, I had a good amount of trauma the few years before, and I covered that up. I numbed all of it. I had a pretty serious eating disorder at the time. I had never processed my sexual assault. I had lost my dad a couple years before. And then this person I got into a relationship with lost his dad the weekend I met him. And so for me, making all the excuses, like I'm going to be the person that I wish was there for me. I'm going to understand all the ways you're screwing up so that because I wish people understood all of my screw ups instead of just placing the blame on me. And it was just this vicious cycle until I realized so much of it was also me being like, if you need me this badly, then you can't leave me. (laughs) And I did, I really didn't want to be alone. And so I thought, it was easier to be with that person because at least he was a distraction from all the other things than it was to be alone and have to deal with my own stuff. Right. So now you perfectly explained what we get by staying stuck. So you had a whole list that you just quickly came up with because you've done your work. So you knew what you were avoiding. But for people where this is a new concept, it can be revolutionary for any place in your life where you're stuck. So even if it's your finances are a mess, what do I get to not face, not feel, not experience by not managing my money, right? And you can also ask yourself, who am I if I'm not mismanaging my money, drinking too much in a relationship where I'm a savior? Who am I? And that brings up questions of like, wow, I don't know that I know because we get so identified with the roles that we play. And you were doing so much projecting in that relationship, right? Where you're like, I can't bear the thought of doing to this person what I felt like others did to me when I was at this low point. But again, the realization is we can't save other people. We can literally only save the one life that we have control over, which is our own. Now, When you have children, of course, you are responsible for making sure that they eat and stay alive. But do you know what I'm saying? In general, when it comes to codependency in particular, there's the savior complex. There's a woman, a therapist, her name is Sean Byrne, I believe is her name. She wrote a book called Unhealthy Helping that I just think is very brilliant and kind of a new take on it where we just get stuck in this role of saving and fixing. And it really is all a form of codependency. And codependency is all disordered boundaries, basically. So it comes all the way back to when we can understand what is my side of the street and what is the other person's side of the street. I'm responsible for what is on my side of the street. So I'm responsible for my feelings, for my thoughts, for my behaviors. I'm not responsible for how someone receives them. Right. If I tell you the truth about something and you 
lose your mind. You yell or scream or get mad or say, you said that to hurt me. If that wasn't my intention and I really didn't, all I can say is, I'm sorry you feel that way. That wasn't my intention, right? It's like when you have good emotional boundaries, you are so much um, less vulnerable to be guilted by other people, to be emotionally manipulated by others because you know yourself, you know? Right. One of my biggest lessons from that whole experience was that you can't steal somebody's lesson. That's basically what overhelping does is you steal their lesson. And one of the things I always talk about is when you do that, when you try to basically steal somebody's rock bottom, all you do is maybe cushion the fall and you're the one with all the bruises. You go right down with them and you're the one who feels it and they don't. And you create a world experience for the other person that if they screw up, somebody else is going to take the fall. Somebody else is going to save them, which is going to make their screw ups even bigger. It's one of the biggest things yep. that I learned in Al-Anon, which is something that I went to to kind of understand what I was even going through and connect with other people. You want to save them. And that's so hard, especially if it's your child or your partner because you're watching it all happen. But as much as you think you're helping, they're going to keep making bad decisions because they've never felt the pain of their own consequences. Right, but you also, let's get really clear about what's actually going on because it's important. You have no idea what that person needs to learn on this life journey. We just think we do. And I remember I was in a situation with one of my siblings and I was like the perennial saver and the giving her money and she was in an abusive relationship with some guy on crack and who was beating her and living in the woods with no water. I mean, like it was a whole thing. Literally, none of that was an exaggeration. That was the situation. And I was crying to my therapist and crying and being like, I don't know, and I've sent her money and I don't know what to do. And she said, what makes you think you know what she needs to learn on her life journey? And she said, what I can tell you what's happening though, Terry, is that her life being a dumpster fire is really messing with your inner peace. You've been in therapy for 20 years to create a harmonious life, to create a productive life, and you want your pain to stop. So you want to fix her like she's a problem, but that's not your right. And I felt obligated to do that. I thought I had to do that. And she said, and by you doing that, which is, this speaks to what you just talked about, Melissa, is that you're taking away the impetus by giving her money, by, like you said, cushioning the bottom, let's say, you're taking away what would be the painful impetus that would have her make a move, change, do something. And after that, it was so, it was liberating and terrifying all at the same time where I was like, wait, so I don't have to do that? She's like, you can't do it. You can only fail in doing that. And you're also, it's like I'm centering myself in her situation by doing that. I will save you. Who, what, who died and made me God? I didn't know. I just was young and I was scared and she was in a dangerous situation. But when I really understood from that brilliant therapist what was going on, then I made an appropriate boundary and said, I love you. And I cannot listen to you talk about this abusive guy anymore. So if you ever want to leave, when you're really ready, I'm definitely still your girl. Like I'm in 100%. And nine months later, I barely talked to her in nine months. She got in touch with me and she's like, I'm ready. I'm like, okay. I had this little lake house in upstate New York. It's like a, like a camp. I don't know if you know anything about upstate New York, but it's like not like a fancy house or anything. But I asked my husband if he would winterize it so she could move in there. And he was like, sure. We paid all the bills. She went back to school. She became a CNA, got sober. That happened. Now, would that have happened had I continued infantilizing the crap out of her? I have no idea. 
I literally don't know. But I do know that after I stepped back and drew an appropriate boundary for me, an emotional boundary, she found her way. And that's all about her self-esteem, her pulling herself up. And yes, of course, I could still help her, but in the way that she wanted me to, with her directing what that looked like, not me thinking I knew better. Does that make sense? It does. What if somebody is creating this boundary with somebody that they can't take that kind of space from, or they're not ready to make that kind of space from, whether it's a parent they still live with or their partner? Mm -hmm. Because I know it can be so much easier to create a boundary if it's a brand new relationship who doesn't know how you've been previously. When I used to move schools when I was younger, I'd be like, I can be anybody I want at this school. Nobody knows who I was before. And so what if it's somebody that's already used to you being a doormat or you solving all their problems? Mm -hmm. How do you go to enforcing boundaries with somebody who's not used to it and might even laugh at you for trying to stand up for yourself? Well, we do it one small next right action at a time. So all you're really talking about is changing the boundary dances that you've established. So think about it that way. Think about it like changing the steps of a dance. So you're not going to go from doing nothing to being like, hey, there's a new boundary sheriff in town. <laughs> like We're not going to like grab the bullhorn and be like, hey, everyone, we need to talk. <laughs> right? There's no warning. We don't need to take out a billboard. You think about Where are you not setting a limit where you would like to? Where are you not prioritizing your own preference? And you just one small step at a time. And again, with the language itself, you got to do the inner work though. So the reason why I teach it and the way that Boundary Boss is written a particular way, like it's not a book that you can just pick up and like, I'm going to start in chapter eight. No, because that will not work. You must start at the beginning because we got to do the deep dive into you understanding yourself and you're building up the courage and the new normal you're creating within yourself before you're ever doing it out in the world. And when you start, even if you're, listen, expect, you know, Dr. Harriet Lerner, who's like one of my psychological heroes, she wrote The Dance of Anger, The Dance of Intimacy. She's just brilliant. If you haven't read her books, oh my God, you want to. Anyway, she talks about people, you know, relationships are dances. And so when we change our steps, the other person is definitely going to do a change back move. So they're going to up the ante. They're going to notice that you changed something. They're going to be like, I don't know what's gotten into you. You've changed. You're not the loving woman I married or you're not the, or you're selfish now or whatever. And we expect that. So instead of being devastated and all so sensitive, like you can't be, you're not that fragile. Your relationships are not that fragile. You want to become a boundary boss if you're a boundary disaster right now? Then what is your payment for that? Learning, being willing to step outside of your comfort zone because your comfort zone has become a prison. You're going to be a little uncomfortable. Sometimes someone's not going to like what you said, what you did. You know what? Everyone's going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Now, I say that if you are not in an abusive relationship, if there is a threat of physical violence, Do not take this advice or anyone's advice, right? You need to get professional help and get out if you're in a domestic violence situation because there is nothing. I mean, I have something in the book. um, It's called Boundary Destroyers. That's one whole chapter, which really is about psychological abuse and manipulation. And that could be 
with someone who has a personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic disorder, bipolar, any of the cluster B personalities, or just people who are super self-absorbed or super controlling, right? You know, and listen, we don't diagnose anyone in this book because that's not what it's about. It's about, I want readers to be aware of the most common manipulation tactics, emotional manipulation tactics that these boundary destroyers use to get around your boundaries, to make you regret ever talking about your boundaries. And so the earlier you can be aware of this, the more likely you can be to not get into a relationship with someone like this. Say you're maybe in a more subtle boundary crossing situation. It's not abusive, you know that. How can you tell when a boundary has been crossed or that maybe you need to set a harder boundary with somebody? Your body will always tell you. So we're dialing into our body wisdom. The moment someone says something that is not cool for you, the moment someone says some backhanded compliment, some bitchy thing, right? Even if you don't have the presence of mind to handle it in the moment, your body went, ugh. You felt a constriction in your chest, a pain in your throat, like maybe your face got hot. Maybe you felt frozen for a second, you know? Your body always knows. And then three hours later, you're like, what the hell did Betty, what did she actually say? Like, what was she talking about? (laughs) Why was she doing that? Then you're like, why didn't I say anything? Then the rumination starts. Or when you become a boundary boss, you go, hey, Betty, I was thinking about what happened when we were on the corner of 38th and 8th. And I wanted to ask you, why would you say that? (laughs) Or, I wanted to let you know, I'd like to make a simple request that you keep your snide comments to yourself. I don't appreciate that. I didn't ask you for your opinion. Please stop judging me or whatever, whatever it is that you wanted to say. Because people always feel like, oh, I missed my opportunity. I'm like, you nuts. You could go back. I could go back to 1978 right now. And women do. boundary violation. (laughs) 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 Because we have the file cabinet of grievances that go all the way back. Trust me. But rather than just holding on to the grievance from 1978, you can actually go back and say, you know, I never talked to you about what happened that summer and I really, I want to, I want to. It's been on my mind. I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about our interaction and I wanted to let you know about my experience. So again, keep in mind all of this healthy boundary language, we're not saying you, you, you. We're saying, I didn't appreciate that. I'd like to make a simple request that you not do that again, not say that again. I felt that you were judging me my in my experience or whatever, you know? It might sound subtle or it's, it's almost like semantics, but it really isn't because there is a healthy way of sharing your experience. And one last thing I want to say, Melissa, before I know we got to go, but is so much of the time people think that making a boundary request is about controlling the other person, Right. We're trying to get them to do what we want them to do. We might be. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, if they're coming home, you know, late and we're asking them not to because we're worried, whatever. Like, yes, we want them to let us know that they're going to be late. That's true. But that's not the only reason. And if you share your boundary request or you share your experience, your healing is in the asking. Your healing is in the sharing. Because this is how people know who we are. And it also inspires people to reveal who they are, what they're capable of, what they're willing to do. And all of this keeping the peace, we don't get this information about people. So you may ask someone to do something and they may say they can't, they're not capable, they don't want to, they're not willing to. But your healing, it will still be good for your self-esteem to say it 
to share your experience, even if the other person doesn't understand. Because then you know, you know who I can count on? Me. I can count on me to not abandon myself the way maybe others have in the past, to to stand up for what I want. And being a boundary boss also means sometimes we have to accept no from other people. We can't be so tender that someone says no and we're like losing our minds about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think that's semantics at all because what I see in that where you said, rather than just holding on to the grievance, I think that's the mistake so many of us make is we're like, that bothered me. And then we replay the grievance so much in our head that we get ourselves used to the grievance rather than using it as a moment of self-reflection to not just speak what you want, but sometimes even figure out what you want, you know, like maybe you didn't realize that thing would have been hurtful until you sit here and reflect and you're like, why, why did that hit me right here? What would I have preferred instead? And then you also use it as a way to figure out your preferences and it's practice for the next time you talk to somebody else because it's not your boundaries aren't reliant on the outcome of whether or not somebody else will accept them. That's what your relationships should be based off of, not your boundaries. So I love that. Exactly. One thing that you teach that I just want to touch on before we go is, is you talk about how our boundaries have been tested for people over the last year and how we can use this time to kind of recalibrate those. How so and how do we do that? Well, I mean, our normal, right, our normal life, all of us, was impacted because of many things. But, you know, a global pandemic being probably the top one. So for many clients and women in my courses, you know, spending an hour a day with someone is one thing. Spending 24 hours a day with someone and kids and homeschooling and working at home and trying to figure it all out and trying to negotiate space and really looking at emotional labor, how much inequity there is in so many of the relationships that women have been writing into me being like, oh my God, I didn't realize. Literally, I do everything. (laughs) How is it possible? Like, yeah, I do everything. So the traumatic experience we all had opened up an opportunity for change because we are very habitual as humans, right? It's just hardwired, right? This is how we would stay safe is sort of being like, this is how I do it. And some people are wired to be really habitual. So it's very easy to go to sleep. You're like, I get up, I make my coffee, get to car, go to work, work, work out, come home, literally get up and do it all over again. Suddenly, we're having to be very present in our lives because we're problem solving on our feet, figuring out space in the house or the apartment, wherever you are. So it was a moment that things had to be renegotiated. Even if you would never have chosen it, you literally had to. Even if you were a frontline worker, because now you were like staying in a hotel because you couldn't like... Everyone, even people who were working during the height of the pandemic, had this experience. And what traumatic and dramatic experiences psychologically create is this opening for transformation. You can get a lot of work done when all of your normal defenses are kind of useless because your normal life is not really happening. We don't have the ways that we numb ourselves normally. We can't avoid things by going out and doing these other things. The ways that we would keep ourselves busy sort of didn't exist, even though we were busy but not in the ways that would have been, (laughs) that we would have wanted to be, let's say. So the, the opportunity was there. So what I suggested for people to do is you have to talk more when you're in close quarters because we're all much more annoyable than we would have been. We need space as human beings. We need psychological privacy, emotional privacy. But many of us were deprived of that because of our living situation, whether it was roommates, family of origin, whoever. 
And it was really hard if it was like your spouse and children and those sort of things. So we call it the, we have rules of engagement so that everyone can't be in the bathroom at the same time, right? <laughs> we need to have a family schedule of like, who's got what going on this week? Which means that here are the times that the shower can be used. Here are the times when no. So really getting organized with how are we going to run and who's doing what? It can't be that one person is doing all the crap. It can't. And if it is, it has to be renegotiated. And a lot of people found that they could, because they were in a new situation, say, hey, these are all the things I'm doing. Write them all down on a whiteboard and be like, and now you're 17, you pick seven of those. You're 14, you pick four of those. And spouse, you pick the other half, like, or whatever it is. We're realizing that it was unfair, creating physical boundaries, putting up signs. If you live in a home or an apartment with rooms that have doors, literally having a different way of interacting. I'm, I'm working from home, which I do anyway, but I was supposed to be on a book tour. So I wouldn't have done 75 interviews, which I have done, from my fireplace room, which is where I am. And my husband is an artist, so he's in a barn right now that's converted into a studio, which is about 100 feet from the house. So I had to create a system so that if there is something hanging on the door, it means he can't come in. I have my assistant send him the schedule for the day, but he won't look at that sometimes. So of course, I'm always problem solving. I'm like, you have the damn schedule every day. It tells you exactly <laughs> when to not come in, when I'm recording and you have to be quiet. But, you know, since that wasn't working, instead of just making him wrong, listen, he's an artist, we're different. I'm like the queen of efficiency and he's amazing. He's efficient in his own way, but he's, you know, he's not like me. So I was like, okay, I'll have a backup plan to put this red thing on the door when you cannot come in. And so we figured it out because, you know, of course he was interrupting things and I'm like, hi, I'm live or hi, this is recorded. Can you get out please? <laughs> and who needs that stress? So some of those things that really has to do with boundaries and communication and also everyone acknowledging this is like not our normal life. We all need to work to be more patient, give each other a break, work within the family system. If you have little kids, you need an hour to go out and take a walk, do it. When you come back, I'll take an hour to take a tub or work out or whatever. Like we have to problem solve. We have to talk about these things. And I found that so many people found that incredibly helpful. I have a bunch of blogs out about it too. Pandemic Survival Kit is one of them. I think it's so important, the idea of writing down all the things that you're doing, because it's so easy to get caught in this mindset that I'm the one doing everything and not see what the other people are doing. And the moment you have that story in your head is the moment you start creating evidence. You only find the evidence to support that story <laughs> instead of seeing totally. that like that person's doing it too. And, and it's funny because I just went... I live on a mountain and I just drove like an hour to get my hair done for the first time since I had a baby. And my husband had the baby for six hours and I came back and he's like, we're so glad you're back. He's like, mom does a lot. And I was like, thank you. I feel so validated. <laughs> and so he had to kind of experience that. But with babies, you can kind of swap roles, but with work and the household stuff, maybe that's not so apparent. So it is important to just communicate those things. So thank you for all your work you've done around boundaries. This is one of the most requested topics from people because I think so many many people have trouble with it. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your amazing book, where's the best place to connect with you online? All right. Well, two things. You can go to boundarybossbook.com and that's where you can find the book and you can put in your little receipt and get a whole bunch of beautiful bonuses. 
You can find me on Instagram at Terry Cole, which is just T-E-R-R-I-C-O-L-E. And I have a special gift, which is about boundaries and codependency, since that was our conversation, that your listeners can get at boundaryboss.me forward slash mind love. All of the links mentioned in this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 188. So I think you can guess what your challenge for this week is. It's going to be about setting boundaries, obviously. But today, I want you to just focus on one. One new boundary. One boundary that you think will move the needle in your life the most. If you could have just one boundary that had the most positive impact on your life, what would that be? My biggest boundary, the number one boundary for me is that I need quiet time to myself every day. Oddly, as simple as it sounds, I wasn't always comfortable voicing this need. And it wasn't until the moments that I would snap and didn't even really know why I was snapping that I started to understand what my actual needs were. And part of this is being an empath. Part of it's just being human. Because I'm so sensitive to the energies of people around me, I need to take that time alone to recharge. If you're an empath or an introvert or, you know, you just know this about yourself, then you know what I mean. But other boundaries might be, maybe I'm comfortable with some touching, but I'm not ready for sex yet because this is a newer relationship. Or maybe for those higher maintenance friends, I'm okay with regular texting, but I don't want to text multiple times in an hour. Or don't expect me to respond right away. This is just how I am. It's nothing personal. Boundaries could even be something like, I am comfortable kissing and holding hands, but not in public. PDA is not my thing. Boundaries are different for all of us, and that's why it takes getting to know yourself to understand what you truly need in the moment so that you know how to set boundaries for yourself. Now, let me know on Instagram what your number one boundary is or what new boundary you're going to enforce. Reach out to me at MindLoveMelissa. And if this episode was helpful for you or you know someone who needs it, tap the share button or take a screenshot and tag me and MindLovePodcast on social media. If you happen to love Mind Love, there are a few ways that you can support the show. First, you can support one of my amazing sponsors. All of these products and services I use and I love personally, otherwise they wouldn't be on my show. You can also sign up for Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. There are extra episodes, meditations every month and other bonuses. Plus, I have some exciting new updates coming soon, so get in now. But otherwise, I'm just really grateful for all of you that have listened to the show and for being in my tribe. So thank you all. And thanks for giving your mind a little love today. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 